So today I'm launching a new series, and this series is going to be basically just a book study on the book of Philippians. And we went back and forth, the staff, we went back and forth on what we were going to land on, and really we just ended up drawing straws is what happened, and and uh, we landed on Philippians. Um, that's not totally true, but uh, we are going to be spending the next five to six weeks in the book of Philippians, which is kind of unusual for us. We, we don't do a lot of textual studies. We, we preach normally a little more topical, but if we're going to grow as the people of God and learn to mature and to develop, then we've got to get pretty good at reading the Bible. And um, just reading the Bible is not good enough. There are are good ways to read the Bible as well. So it's important that we learn some of those. So we're going to be in the book of Philippians for the next few weeks. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're not going to read quite yet, but so you'll be ready. So we're going to do a book study here, and I'm going to paint a picture. And uh, in the Bible, there are different kinds of texts, different kinds of literature. The book of Philippians is an epistle. It's a letter. And it was written by Paul to a specific group of people addressing very specific things. And it is possible for us to get unlimited wisdom and knowledge without knowing the context of Philippians. But it is more helpful to know than to not know. And so I'm going to paint a little bit of the picture behind where Paul was and where this church was when they started so that we know what Paul means when he talks about some of these things. So the context is the Philippian church was one of the first churches that Paul planted. And it was the first church in Europe. And if you remember in the book of Acts chapter 16, we actually get the story of the founding of this church. So in Acts chapter 16, Paul is, uh, is praying, he's with Silas and some of his buddies, and they are trying to go into Asia. They're trying to go east into Asia. Let's see, so for you guys, that would be this way. They're trying to head east into Asia, and Paul says he felt like the Holy Spirit prevented them from going, but his heart was to go. So then shortly thereafter, he heard or had a vision of a man crying out saying, come to Macedonia. And we know this as the quote unquote, the Macedonian call where Paul and Silas and Timothy and these guys felt called to change their course and to head to Macedonia. And then we have the story immediately after of Paul and Timothy and Silas, they head into Macedonia and they can't find the synagogue because there's so few Jews in Philippi that they don't even have a synagogue. It was custom to have at least 10 male Jews to have a synagogue. They didn't even have that. So they had a place of prayer outside the city gates. So Paul and these guys go outside of the city gates and they meet Lydia. And you'll remember that Lydia sold cloth that was the color purple. That's right. Lydia sold purple cloth. So they make a custom of going out to this place of prayer day by day. And after a few days, there's this girl that is tormenting them. And she's a, a soothsayer or a fortune teller or a palm reader, whatever you want to call her. And Paul says, come out in the name of Jesus. And then the spirits come out. And she can no longer read palms and she can no longer tell futures. And they get upset. The owners get upset because Paul has not just freed this woman, but he is, for one, disrupted their way of earning money. And two, he's upsetting the social order and thereby the political order by claiming that Jesus is Lord. 
Okay, so we're going to jump into that here a little more in just a minute. So that's the story behind this church. So then Paul leaves. He's there a very, very short time. He leaves and he does all those other wonderful things in the book of Acts. And then what we believe to be pretty near to the end of his life, Paul is again imprisoned. Oh, by the way, I forgot. Paul there before leaving is imprisoned, and that's when there's the earthquake and the Philippian jailer is about to commit suicide. And Paul says, no, wait, we're still here. And he goes, I can't believe you're still here. What must I do to believe in this Lord, this Jesus, that has caused you to act this way? And he says, believe in Jesus, that he is the son of the living God, the Christ, the Lord, and you and your household will be saved. And the jailer immediately turned to Christ and his family was saved. And then it was but days later when Paul and these guys departed. So they were only in this church probably a few weeks at the beginning of their ministry. So then here Paul is at least 10 years later and he's imprisoned again and he's writing to these guys from a jail cell. And uh, this letter is very unique and different than say Galatians or 1 Corinthians because Paul from the very beginning to the very end is endearing. These are his friends. You can just tell by the tone of the writing that these are people that he cares deeply for. And he's writing not just about joy, which is one of the main themes and messages of the book, but the tone of the writing itself is joyful. It's it's grateful. It's thankful. And you can tell that there is an investment, a deep investment between Paul and this body. So I'm going to jump in here. There are three major themes. And like I said, this series is going to go on for the next five to six weeks. And so you're going to hear these themes repeated throughout. And each one of us that are preaching are going to nuance it differently according to the text. But these three major themes, the first is partnership. There is a theme of partnership from the very beginning to the very end. And it's a partnership between Paul and the people, between the the people and Paul, and between God and his church. It is this this theme, this connection of partnership that runs in multi-directional. It runs in all these different directions. Um, And that is a strong theme. And that partnership, that word throughout the book is the word kononia, which is actually kind of a vague word that gets used in a whole bunch of different ways that really means participation with something or someone. But in the Christian sense, what that word really means is that there is a common anchor, a common rootedness in a shared investment or a shared possession. And uniquely for Christians, what this means is actually that we have been possessed, that we do not possess something similarly, but that you and I and this church in Philippi and Paul have all been possessed by Jesus. And that is the thing that is causing this partnership, that Jesus has joined them together. And that brings strength and meaning to that word kononia in this book. Um, They are sharing in the tasks of ministry. Another really, really important thing for us to recognize as we begin reading this book is that, so in the Jewish culture, there was very little participation in the religion on the part of the people. It was very much mediated by the priests, right? We know this through the Pentateuch and all through the Old Testament. So here in Christianity, 
Paul is training these guys what it is to actually partner with him in ministry. That they're not just bystanders, they're not just supporters of his ministry, but they, by giving, by praying, by joining their hearts, are actually joining with Paul in his ministry. And this is a really new concept for these believers. So that that just adds depth to this theme of partnership. And in the book of Philippians, the book is actually written as a response to a financial gift. So Philippi is actually a large town, but the church itself was pretty small. But from the beginning, there were three recorded times, and we see this at the end of Philippians, and we see this in the book of Acts, that the church of Philippi gave Paul a financial gift when he was in other towns doing ministry, supporting other churches, which is pretty amazing to think about. Some of these churches, like the church in Corinth and Ephesus, were much, much bigger. But this church in Philippi is supporting Paul while he does ministry elsewhere that really has no benefit to them. And so this letter begins and ends as a thank you letter for Paul. Paul is in prison and he is saying, you know, I don't know if I would have made it without you guys. Thank you. There's a, there's a very sincere and, and deep thankfulness that Paul is expressing to this church while he's in prison because of the gifts and the support that they have shown for him. The second major theme is the gospel. And in this time... We have to retrain what, what we think of when we hear the word gospel. Because what they heard is the good news that Jesus is Lord, which meant something very specific to this group of people. It meant if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And to us, we don't really understand that context, but to them, empire worship, the imperial cult was the prevalent religion other than Judaism. So for them, worshiping Caesar was just like in the Old Testament, worshiping Baal, their their livelihood, their peace, their provision, all of these things were dependent upon them submitting to worshiping Caesar. So when Paul comes in and this jailer who is Roman, who is probably deeply uh, integrated into this imperial cult says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, you have to profess that Jesus is Lord. It means much more than I want to ask Jesus into my heart so that I can go to heaven when I die. It means I now have to restructure and reorder my life around this truth that Caesar is not the one who's in charge of my life. And Caesar is not the one who I'm dependent upon. It is Jesus Christ. And this is a radical development for these people who have been so inculcated in empire worship. So the second major theme is the gospel. The gospel was a direct threat to the imperial cult. And we see that in Acts chapter 16, as I just pointed out. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And the message of the gospel is what has anchored their partnership to Paul. So this this message of the gospel, we see it throughout the entire text. You're going to hear about the gospel every week. And the gospel was the cause of their sending him money. The gospel was the cause of Paul's joy, as we're going to get into here in a few minutes. The gospel was the central theme, the, the, the thing of utmost importance to Paul and the Philippian church. <clears throat> The third theme and the final theme is joy in hardship. And really there are two reasons that Paul finds deep joy in hardship. Oh, look at Caitlin getting this up on the screen. Come on, girl. 
There are two main reasons. One, he says this, and we're going to read this together here in just a moment. He says, in all my prayers for you, I always pray because of your partnership in the gospel. He can have joy because he is not alone. And he is actually physically, most likely alone. But in spirit, in partnership, he has the Philippians in his heart and they carry him. There is this responsibility for one another because of the gospel. And for that, Paul rejoices. Even in prison, Paul rejoices because he's not alone. And the second reason Paul can rejoice is because he sees beyond the temporal into the eternal. This theme of joy that runs throughout the letter is counterintuitive to his circumstances because he's like in prison, right? And, and this is not a naivety kind of joy or just a, a I'm going to look away and just be hopefully optimistic. This is a deep-rooted joy, and Paul actually looks his situation in the face, and he talks quite a bit about it at the end of chapter 1. And he says, you know what, in spite of all of this, I can have joy because I'm not looking at my circumstances. I have found Christ, and what more is there to be had than Christ? If they take my life, to die is gain. So this is, this is not this naivety or this ignorance that, that things are really better than they are. This is Paul looking in the face of his circumstances and saying, in spite of all this, I can have joy because you have chosen to partner with me and because God has partnered with me for the sake of his gospel. The reason for Paul's joy is found in his serving Christ and not his circumstances. What's funny is, and you'll hear more about this next week, Paul's not really all that concerned with getting out of prison. He, he's not all that concerned about his circumstances changing. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And what I'm not saying is that to you, you shouldn't pray for your circumstances to change. But, but if we are to really grab hold of this joy, We've got to be able to wrap our minds and our spirits around this idea that God's promises go beyond death. That, that the temporal world does matter, but it's not the only thing that matters. And this is something we really can learn from Paul. That he's, he knows that he's not alone, and he knows that God's work is not wholly dependent on him. So let's go ahead and turn to the text here. We're going to start reading in Philippians, and we're going to do just a good old Bible study. We're going to work through the first 11 verses here, and this is, like I said, this is different than what you're used to, but I hope that you will find life in this, and I'll say this hopefully again at the end if I remember, but let me challenge you to read the book of Philippians as much as you possibly can throughout this series. It's only four chapters long, so I'll challenge you, read it at least once a week. It takes about 30 minutes. And so if you can join with me and, and Pastor Jade and Pastor Dan in doing that, that would be awesome as we bring these messages. So let's start in verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I will always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I want to push pause really quick. And do you hear this tone of joy 
that, that he is writing with deep, profound gratitude. And for those of you who are pretty familiar with Paul's other letters, compare this to Galatians, where he says, oh, you foolish Galatians. This is radically different, right? Paul here is writing, he's in to them. He's given himself to them. And you can hear that coming out in the writing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read verses 4 and 5 and then into 6 again because it's all one sentence. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I firmly believe that this sentence is not necessarily the most important sentence in the whole book, but I believe that it frames the whole book, and everything subsequent to this verse should be read in light of this verse. So let's read six one more time, and we've already read it like three times today, so you're going to be going home writing songs about this. Please email them to me. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This verse frames the rest of the book because partnering and rejoicing and suffering the advancement of the gospel, all of these things are only possible insofar as God is faithful to his own work in our lives and the people around us. If God is not faithful to his own work, then really none of this matters. And that's when this becomes Baal worship. You remember the story with Elijah where, where they're just, they start out praying, then they start crying out, then they start cutting themselves. And it's this whole concept of we've got to work ourselves into a frenzy to convince Baal to do what we want him to do. And this is precisely the opposite of Christianity. Partnership with God in the gospel is God initiating a work and us responding and partnering with him, which looks like submission and growing in love and all of these other things to his will and to his ways and partnering with him in the work that he will complete. And this is also where, and I think we talked about this uh, in some context recently, the hall of faith in Hebrews. is the, It was this concept of we trust that even upon our death, God is still competent and able and faithful to carry through his promises far beyond what we can see in our short lives on the earth. This verse frames the rest of the book. I believe that in this verse, and to hear me on this, this is not absolving us from responsibility. This is not saying God will do everything. All you have to do is pray a prayer, and then you're good, and God's going to make things happen. I believe that this does frame our responsibility in a different way. That our responsibility is not to work ourselves up. It's not to prove to God. It's to humbly submit ourselves to God, to listen to what he's doing. And as we will find out in verses 9 through 11, to learn to allow our love to help us discern the work of God in the people and the circumstances around us. We are responsible. We're just responsible in a different way. The evidence of God's work in them is not their successful flourishing, but their learning to trust God and truly care for one another. I mean, think about this. Why does Paul even have to say, I am confident that God will finish this? So let's think back. So Acts chapter 16, 
The church was essentially birthed, this church was birthed when Paul was in prison. And there was an earthquake, and he shortly thereafter got out of prison, and then there were the first converts, okay? Paul is now finding himself in prison again, and as we see throughout the rest of chapter 1, we're not sure if he's going to get out or not. And actually, scholars still debate, because Paul was in prison so many times, sounds like a wonderful life, right? The life of an apostle and a prophet. Paul was in prison so many times, they don't actually know which time this was. This very well could have been the last time that he was in prison and he was led to death. Some scholars believe that, some don't. So Paul has to reassure them of his confidence in the Lord's ability to fulfill what he started because it looks on the surface like God is not fulfilling what he started. The first time he was in prison, he got out. This time, we're not so sure. But God is still faithful to his work, Paul says, even if I don't get out. Even if I die, I'm confident that the gospel will advance and be moved forward. Think about this, that in our human condition, every promise that you and I make has one asterisk. And that asterisk is as long as we are alive, right? It doesn't matter how wealthy, how powerful, how long you live, certain promises die when you die, which is why the marriage vows, we say, until death do us part. And this is what's so wonderful about God, is that for one, God never dies, and two, at least not anymore that Jesus is risen from the grave, but God's promises are not contingent upon us being alive on this earth. And I know that this sounds crazy, but there are so many of God's promises that if we don't see them from an eschatological lens, which basically means in light of the end, when Christ returns and makes all things new, if we don't see his promises in that way, then we are going to be disappointed over and over and over and over again. And even in recognizing that, there will be times when we are disappointed, but at least we have hope and joy because God's promises go on into eternity. And that is part of the Christian hope. And that is why we can have joy even in the worst circumstances. So let's go on and read verses seven and eight. Paul continues and he says, and this is a, this is a new thought. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, here this, this partnership is, is uh, coming to the surface again. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And here's another reinforcement of that idea of learning to partner in ministry. They're physically separate. Paul is in prison, but he's saying, you're carrying, the, you're helping me attain this grace and you're in this with me because we are partnered in Christ. And God can testify how, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I want to spend some time honing in here on the end, that, that last phrase. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. In the Greek, this actually means, that it's, it's kind of gross, but get over it. Paul says 
that it's almost as if he's caught up in the guts of Jesus. And the entrails is the actual word that Paul feels so deeply. He's like in the the good uh, Bible, Old King James, the bosom of Christ, right? He's in the the midsection. He feels the ache. He feels what Christ feels for these people. And I would like to submit to you that this is one of the highest marks that we can know we are spiritually maturing. It's not that we learn to exercise gifts as much as we learn to feel and to carry the feelings and the heart of Jesus Christ, which always involves the people around us. If you don't care about the people around you, I would question how you're spiritually maturing. And this is why it's so interesting in every one of Paul's letters, it seems like he spends the bulk of his time teaching them how to live together, how to care for one another, how to go on worshiping Jews and Gentiles, how in a male-dominant society to engraft women and children into their services and into their into their daily lives. Because how we care for one another might be the most important thing about us. I submit that to you. Let that mess with you because it's so easy in Western individualism to to accidentally, I'll I'll give us grace because I am so much in this, to accidentally utilize people for our own spiritual benefit when really God is calling us to care for the people around us. And I think that is one of the marks of spiritual maturity. That God's work, and and we see this in verse six, he says, the good work that you began, God is faithful to complete. I believe that this good work is a work of internal transformation, not just external modification, but it always expresses itself in the physical. That we can't just say, I carry people in my heart, but they never know about it by the way that we act. If people can't tell by the way you act, then I'll stop right there. I'll let Pastor Jade finish that next week. Paul's partnership with this people was evidenced in his affection, just listening to this language. It was evidenced in his affection and in his prayers. And their partnership with him was evidenced by their repetitive giving that did not even benefit them. Remember, they gave Paul three financial gifts throughout the course of his ministry. And none of them were while he was actually in Philippi. That is the evidence of their partnering and their learning to care and to deeply integrate their lives with the work of Paul. And this is the evidence that the work of grace had actually begun in their lives. This is why Paul can say, I'm confident God is going to finish what he started. And I know that it's actually started because I've been a recipient of the grace that God is moving in you. God inspired them to give sacrificially and generously to Paul. And Paul says, I've been a recipient. And that's how I know that God is actually doing something in this church. Let's keep moving on. Verses 9 through 11. And we're going to do a recap of this at the end. I know I'm flying through. So let's keep continuing here. Paul actually prays now. So he prefaces his prayer with, I carry you so deeply in my heart. And then he says, And this now is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Man, what a beautiful prayer, right? I want to learn to pray like this. And you can tell, for one, I think it's important to notice that before Paul actually gives any instruction, he prays for them that their love may abound and that they may be able to discern. And I wonder for you and I how this might change our interactions with people is if before we go to people with things that need to be corrected, if we would pray for our ability to communicate and their ability to hear and to discern. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone and it feels like you're beating a wall, saying the same thing over and over and over again, parents with children, children to parents, bosses, spouses, definitely not mine, definitely her to me, but not me to her. And I just wonder what difference it would make if we learned to pray that the people we want to uh, approach have ears to hear what we are saying. I, I think that that might really transform our, our, uh, our relationships, especially as a church. I think we would learn to have grace and empathy and compassion for people and learn to, to at least attempt to stand in another person's shoes, which is really what compassion and empathy are all about. <clears throat> so he prays that love may abound still more in real knowledge and discernment. And this is where I think we get into what that different kind of responsibility looks like. It looks like us being able to discern the work of God so that we can partner with it. We are not, none of us are creating the work of God. You all know that, right? And that should be a burden lifted that every one of us in every moment of ministry from the beginning of our relationship with Jesus, every moment of ministry we walk into, we walk into having already been initiated by the Holy Spirit. And we are responding and being brought into a work that the Lord is preparing in someone else's heart and someone else's life. You and I have never initiated any ministry. And that to me is freeing. It reminds me that the Spirit is already there, that the Spirit is already moving in other people's lives, and hopefully upon my tongue, and upon my hands as I pray for people, and upon my ears as I listen to them, that you and I are always responding and partnering, never initiating. Another thing we really need to focus on here is that he says, your love may abound still more, and another translation, I believe the NASB says, in real knowledge and discernment. And what I think that this means is that love uh, would cause us to think, hear, perceive, and eventually live differently. That love, when it's blossoming and, and flourishing in our lives, should cause us to be more intuitive to the people around us. It's not that we're just now kinder than we were before. It's that we're invested in such a way where I care what God is doing in your life, that I'm learning to perceive, that I'm learning to listen and see what's actually happening beneath the surface. With this person that's sitting next to me, yes, I love them, I feel for them, but the, the next step is that when love really matures, love should cause me to go beneath the surface. And I'm seeking of ways, yeah, it's, okay, here, here's something that's indicative of our love going deeper. When you hear that someone has a need, 
there are a handful of ways to respond, and I think that they are all appropriate. The first is that we meet their need, and we say, oh, this person needs money, I meet their need. That's a sign of love. Another way is that we pray, Lord, would you meet their need? That is also another sign of love. And I believe that there is a third way that we don't exercise as often as we should. And that is the hard prayer of learning to pray, and Lord, wherever you're working beneath this need, I pray for strength and grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that you would mature them, that you would cause me to be a firm foundation, a pillar that they can lean on if it takes a long time for their need to be met. Those kinds of prayers are indicative that love is flourishing in us, that we're, we are willing to be the pillar, right? I've heard it said in another message by uh, a theologian that I greatly respect. He says that we would learn to be the whale that swallows Jonah and puts up with his temper tantrums until he's ready to respond to God rightly. Can we learn to be those kinds of people can we learn to be people who can just hug and listen and listen to the rage and listen to the disappointment and be a firm foundation for those people until they're ready to respond rightly? Can we be that kind of people? I believe that verse six tells us that we can because this is dependent upon his faithfulness because it is his work. Love is not a replacement for pursuing knowledge or discernment. Love without knowledge can be just good intentions. And we've all been hurt by people with good intentions, haven't we? Love pursues. Love requires insight and discernment and wisdom when it matures. And then in verse 10, he says, to discern what is best and to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And what's at work here in the Greek is really not a discerning what's best as in right from wrong. It's more of a discerning what is best among things that are good. And, and this is imperative if we are to grow as a church because we all have different passions and different giftings and things that are important to us. And I think what Paul is telling them is, guys, you've got the basics but now you've got all kinds of people that are saying, we need to do this and we need to do this and this is important and it's important that we observe this Jewish holiday and it's important that we still don't eat pork and we do all of these things. And, and what Paul is saying is, I pray that your love may cause you to discern what is important for each time and season of your living together with one another. And that requires mutual submission. Man, it seems like that keeps coming around a lot, doesn't it? in the last six weeks or so, it requires mutual submission and humility and grace and learning to lay down my priorities. And man, am I preaching to myself right now. Learning to lay down what is important to me for the sake of the greater body. I want to just read in closing this uh, verses 9 to 11 in the message translation because I think it is so beautiful and it says some of these things uh, a little more profoundly to me. I'm gonna read it very slow. Paul says, so this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but love well. Assuming that there is a difference, right? Learn to love appropriately. 
You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not just sentimental gush. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life that Jesus would be proud of, bountiful in fruit from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. And I think that reading of that text just pictures so beautifully what it is to be a community that Paul is exhorting them to become, and they're already on the journey to becoming, of a community that grows up in authentic love, not quote-unquote sentimental gush, right? Intelligent, wise, discerning love that knows when to press and when to back off, and when to provide and when to release, and when to watch God do something miraculous, and knows when to put up with the temper tantrums and when to confront. This requires spiritual maturity that we need to be striving for as a body. So a a quick recap here, that all of this is only possible insofar as God is faithful to his work that he began. And this is so important for us because as we prayed in pre-service prayer, that this church has a 20 plus year history. This is not a new church. And we have entered into a faith that is more than 2,000 years old. And God has continually been working, and he's never stopped working. And it's our job to learn to discern where God is moving. And that, I believe, is one of the greater works. So if our communion attendants will come forward, we're going to take communion here together. And I believe that there are a few appropriate things for us to focus on this morning as we come to the table. One is to examine and allow the Spirit to examine our hearts for the ways that we have been less than this kind of lover for this community. For the ways that we have not carried each other in our hearts, the way that Paul carries them and the way that they carry Paul. And the ways that we have not yet partnered with this ministry that we have stood afar and watched. And this is not a plug for ministry crew, but it might as well be. That there are ways for each and every one of us to partner with this ministry, the House of Antioch, in a greater and deeper way. And that's not just you partnering with the people on stage, that is you partnering with the people next to you and learning to carry their burdens and learning to live with compassion and empathy for the people around you. So I'd like us to take just a minute to examine our hearts in that way, and then we're going to come forward, and we're going to receive the elements and take them back to our...